gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. Now looking at his watch because apparently a woman's spoken too long. God's kingdom will come. It is in his hands. We trust in him. We don't trust in governments. You want to go down that path today? I will (laughs) do it. I tell you what, any boss who sacks anyone for not turning up today is a bum. Welcome to Edge of the Election, the Edge of the Crowd's politics podcast. I'm Joel, your host, and this week I'm joined by Jason and Ali. Um, So a bit of an interesting week this week, some changes in the polls that we've observed. So um, it is the case that Labor has slipped once again in the polls, following a trend that we observed last week as well. So the coalition have gained one point, and this is on the federal level, um, and Labor now hold a 54-46 lead. This could potentially be due to recent super changes proposed by the Labor Party, uh, which would see higher taxes on those earning over $3 million in their super, uh, which we'll talk more of later. I have lots of thoughts on it. Um, otherwise, we have the New South Wales election getting closer and closer. I believe it's on March 25th. Uh, polls are currently suggesting that Labor will take government uh, with uh, th- the three polls um, of Morgan, Resolve and Freshwater, I believe, generally suggesting in the ballpark like 53 to 47 to Labor. Um, yeah, so that's how things are looking. Uh, what do we think of the polls so far, guys? It'll be so interesting if uh, Labor takes government because will that mean that everywhere except one government will now have flipped to Labor? Is it just Tasmania who has a Liberal government? So that, that would be quite interesting if most yeah, of the I country so. were, were, uh, were on a Labor government. Yeah, it would be a Labor mainland, yes. <laughs> yeah. I Like my personal kind of take on the New South Wales election is I don't know how much stock to take in these polls in that while we don't have like gerrymandering per se um the distribution of boundaries really favors the liberal party in new south wales in the state um electorates uh which seems to be much more uh equally or fairly distributed in the national electorate boundaries okay that's interesting i guess that might explain some things because it's not something I was actually like quite aware of, I think. So the the actual electoral boundaries themselves like fave the liberals is that that's that's the okay. Well, I mean, uh, I hope the the NSWEC get that sorted. Um, yeah, uh, but I know uh, I'm glad we do not have that same situation in Victoria. However, unfortunately, we do have some other uh, unfortunate things occurring in Victoria. So, uh, Ali, would you like to take us away there? Oh, yes. Uh, Let's chat about cannabis reform. Uh, Very exciting. This one is actually uh, looking pretty positive. Uh, So on Wednesday, the Victorian Parliament will debate legislation to alter the state's road laws to allow medicinal uh, cannabis users to drive. Uh, currently, it's a criminal offence for road users to drive with any THC, uh, so that's the psychoactive compound in cannabis, detectable in their system. Uh, so the use of cannabis was legalised uh, as a medicine uh, by Victoria in 2016, but it remains the only prescription medicine in the state that road users are under the law unable to take and then legally drive. Uh, so for the sake of clarity, uh, things like opioids, benzos, uh, amphetamine-derived products, um, none of these substances are subjected to road uh, like driving restrictions. Uh, as the issue has gained more traction, it's become clear that Victoria's road laws are restricting the access to cannabis, to medicinal cannabis. Uh, the, the risk of being charged with a criminal offence for many is way too great. They risk losing their licence. You can understand why they are fearful to take their medicine, which is uh, very problematic. Uh, the risks for, uh, for legal users are further complicated by the fact that THC can be detected long after any possible impairing effects have ceased. Uh, to give this context, THC can be detected in the blood up to 30 days after use. Uh, so this definitely suggests detection isn't an effective way to determine impairment. Uh, so excitingly, Dan Andrews has flagged the change as a priority. The bill hasn't been introduced by the government. It's been introduced by the uh, Legalised Cannabis Party. Uh, But it's looking like there's a real possibility that the legislation will pass. Uh, So interested to know where do you guys stand on the possible change? Seems like pretty pretty obvious stuff to me, right? 
Uh, so it, it appears that multiple other states and countries have already d- done similar things. So there there is a strong sort of precedent and evidence base for this. I don't think it would be like legally or morally consistent to say that people can drive little alcohol in their system or like with various other sorts of medications in their systems. But like THC is the one that's like suddenly unacceptable. It appears to be the case. It's just generally sort of uh, an anti-weed um, sentiment that has lingered in the political culture and has served as an impediment to attempts to sort of change that. We'll say. So yeah, I mean, this seems this seems pretty good. Uh, you know, it seems like a, 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 a good decision by the Andrews government. Hopefully, we see some action on this soon. It makes sense if there is, because the testing for something like. Um alcohol is you can only really detect it if it's currently affecting or impairing the user it makes total sense to have a completely different uh law dealing with a substance can be detected for days weeks after um the product has been used given that that product is uh legal for medical uh use it's an interesting one isn't it uh the some of the argument against is based on the fact that we don't yet have a really clean, really clear determination for impairment like we do with alcohol. And, and so it's definitely contributing to a little bit of caution. Uh, it's, it's interesting, though, because the one of the big ticks uh, for it is that a lot of these other medications that do have impairing uh, elements to them, there is a general trust that people will moderate their driving around their usage. And yet we haven't attached that same trust to cannabis users. I saw an interesting statistic that suggested at the moment, uh, it's the highest number of prescriptions for cannabis are for women over 50 at the moment. And so when you look at that in the context of road rules, it I think it makes even more sense that we would trust them to make that call when they drive, just like we do with all these other substances. I feel like there's a holdover, uh, a bit of an impression that these cannabis users are young, irresponsible people, and it just it doesn't really match the reality here. Uh, so definitely, uh, definitely a stigma that is uh, sustaining here. And I, I do hope that this passes and leads to uh, more cannabis reform. But that's probably uh, a, lo- a long way off still. I mean, yeah. I don't think they test for like other painkillers and things like or things like uh, Valium or. Tylenol PM, like, and these all, all these things can uh, can affect your driving, you know, or you can impair your ability to concentrate and be alert and all this kind of stuff. But um, yeah, there's something. There's obviously historical reasons for there being this uh, particularly heavy-handed approach to THC, even though it's been uh, medically approved. Absolutely. Well, everyone thinks it's just like teenagers going to their doctor and saying they have anxiety or something and then getting prescribed THC, right? You know, but as Elliot has outlined, there is a pretty, uh, you know, important and quite non-intuitive reality here of, you know, older women. Right. And like the, you know, like, like, and one of the things about Australia is that if you look at the stats for things, it is generally like older women, like women sort of in there between their sort of 50s and, and 70s and such that are screwed over the most by policy. Like, I, I know, for instance, that a few years ago, like that was the prime demographic on, um, on, on New Start. Um, now I suspect it very well might still be the case. So yeah, uh, and, and like more, more of that basically. All right. Um, yeah, okay. We can probably we can probably get moving on then. So, all right. So we have established that the current driving laws for medical cannabis users are pretty cooked. <laughs> now we have Jason who will explain uh, why it is that there is even more cooked stuff happening in federal parliament in regards to refugee policy. Um, so today... Monday, the 6th of March, was the first opportunity since last August for Parliament to have a second reading of Independent Andrew Wilkie's private member's bill called the Ending Indefinite and Arbitrary Immigration Detention Bill. It needed to be reintroduced to Parliament because it has lapsed, but this didn't end up happening today, so it didn't end up getting a look in at all. I don't have a huge amount of confidence in it getting past the second reading. It, like, if it is reintroduced, it will 
come into the second reading stage. Um, and after a while of Labor dragging its feet on the issue, uh, it is not necessarily the most promising of situations for people being tortured in offshore prisons. Uh, today was Private Members Monday, where the most most things introduced by independent and other non-government legislation has a chance of moving forward. It was f- referred to the Standing Joint Committee on Migration last August, and that committee has since been disbanded. And even though it aligns with Labor's policy platform, I do think they'll want to take advantage of or ownership of any kind of significant refugee legislation that passes. I don't think they're going to want to let a uh, lowly independent, uh, you know, introduce and and pass things under their watch. Also, curiously enough, the Minister of Home Affairs, Claire O'Neill, has, um, has the ability to unilaterally, with the stroke of a pen, move all the current detainees to the community tomorrow without any new legislation being passed at all. It, it is probably better to get things enshrined in legislation than l- just leave it up to the whims of a overpowered home affairs department. But the fact that they haven't done anything could be an indication that Labor doesn't really want to spend any political capital on the issue right now, especially while the voice to parliament is taking up all the kind of rhetorical oxygen in the room, as it were. Also, Claire O'Neill seems much more focused recently on things like skilled migration and migration for worker shortages than dealing with uh, any anything to do with irregular migration. I do think this could be a great opportunity for Labour to distract the Sky News crowd from super reform attacks, like jangling some race-baiting keys in front of them, and just have them yell about that for a bit. Uh, But what do you think, what do you guys think the best way to deal with this issue is? Like, how do we move forward? What's going to be a win-win situation for the Labour Party? Is this something they can actually take up? And does the electorate, is the electorate ready for moving past our ridiculous and horrible immigration, uh, irregular immigration practices? I, I don't think we're ready. Uh, and I don't think that Labor really have any intention of doing anything big in this space. I'm really glad that you brought this up because uh, I've been pretty cranky for a, a bit of this this last month because there's been a lot going down in the in this uh, in this space. And I think a lot of what has happened over the last few weeks have really pointed to Labor not being interested in doing anything large or anything meaningful. I think it's politically risky, absolutely. And if they were to introduce immigration reform at the same time as tax reforms, uh, shit would hit the fan. And I think it would give the Liberals a little bit too much of uh, a little bit too much rope and it would be dangerous, especially uh, heading into the next election because they're definitely looking ahead with these super changes coming in at the next election. Uh, if 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 I if you don't mind humoring me for a little bit, I'll run through some of like what has happened. While Wilkie's bill didn't get up, uh, Green Senator Nick McKim has a bill currently in, in federal parliament. It was introduced at the start of last month and that is an evacuate to safety bill. So it would immediately remove the roughly 160 refugees in offshore detention and bring them to Australia straight away. Uh, On the same day, though, the government, without prior notice, slipped through uh, the redesignation of a Nauru bill because they accidentally let that lapse in October. So they restricted general standing orders so it didn't get debated as usual. And that bill was introduced in the afternoon and passed on the same day uh, because the coalition, of course, backed it. On the same day, they also (laughs) introduced legislation to uh, overturn a federal court ruling from December. That federal court ruling determined that the government couldn't cancel visas on the back of aggregate sentences. And so they had to, over Christmas, release about 100 refugees from onshore detention. That bill passed the following week. And the next day, the government, because uh, they made it retroactive. That's the really key, really brutal thing that the government did. They made it retroactive. So the 100 people that they let go, the next day started getting letters telling them that they had to present themselves for redetention. And there's at least one person who was just collected on their way to work with no prior notice. 
pretty horrific stuff. Uh, so when we're talking about the ending of arbitrary detention, the government are clearly showing that they're not interested. McKim's bill uh, got referred to an inquiry, and so the report for that will come back tomorrow, and then his bill will be debated on Wednesday. So it'll be really interesting. But McKim uh, tweeted on Friday that it looks like the government have developed a position against the bill and that will probably be made clear in this inquiry report. He said that they are invoking the convention of the rights of the child to argue against the bill, which I personally love. I really want to see how they pull this off because as we spoke about last week, the Australian government willfully disregard the convention all the time. The, it's a violation of the convention uh, holding children in prison, onshore, and our immigration policy is in violation of it. So they clearly don't give a shit. And so to be invoking it now to argue against a bill will be really interesting. So I think when we look at those last few weeks, it's been a pretty hectic, <laughs> a pretty hectic period. It, I think it really illustrates that they're not interested. It, I think as a, as a concession to refugees, they did reclassify or they at least there's been this uh, argument about ending the limbo that a number of refugees currently uh, experience in this country because they're still on temporary protection visas. And the government, one of their election promises was to get rid of that entirely. So they did make uh, pathways for about 19,000 people to shift into uh, permanent residency. So that's one thing that they did kind of in amongst all that, I think somewhat to offset everything that was happening. And I feel a bit like they've done, they're, they're thinking we've done our one good thing for refugees. It's near a campaign promise and we'll call it a day. And then the thing is, of course, that that, that fixes one sort of element of Australian refugee policy, which is in violation of like several like international human rights agreements. It doesn't fix the systemic issues, like the the actual way that we run the system of, of refugee like processing in Australia. It, it doesn't fix this, and the whole thing is a is a giant human rights violation, right? So that's that's the the big issue there. You, you, you can't really tinker around the edges with this. You do just have to restructure the whole thing. And I think what's worth mentioning is that the Labor Party uh, have a history of investment in this kind of refugee policy right like this there, there's a perception sometimes that like labor adopted this as like a you know as like sort of a response to like a post howard post tamper affair sort of thing where they that were sort of forced into it essentially and uh, that there there's maybe a, a degree of truth to that like they probably were forced into an even harsher like refugee policy but it's worth remembering that paul keating started mandatory offshore detention uh in in, in the 1990s right uh, during the Keating government on, yeah, like the like a heyday of the, of the Labor Party. So, like, this is something there is some degree of ide ideological investment in from the Labor Party. And I think that is what we are seeing here as well. It's that, like, they don't necessarily, like, want to. They understand, I, I think they understand, like, they, 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 maybe they have plans to in the future eventually when the winds sort of change. But the thing is, we are already seeing some sea change on this issue, right? Like, uh, I'm looking at a Lowy Institute poll from 2022 currently, and following the, following the two years of pandemic, there has been like a pretty big shift towards more openness and willingness to, to, to tolerate immigration, right? So I've got, uh, a 15 point increase from 2018 in agreement to Australia's openness to people from all over the world is essential to who we are as a nation. So that's up to like 68% from like 53% like a few years ago. So th there's like, if there's a time to do this, I would say it is, it is around this point. Like labor can't keep putting this off. But I think over the next sort of few weeks and even over the next few years in, in, in a more long-term sense we're going to see like what do the labor party really think about australian refugee policy well if we're looking at um the labor party over an even longer period of time they have on the whole been the party of anti-immigration yes. Uh, in uh, in a long term context, uh, very much, uh, especially a lot of uh, China kind of scare mongering, um, and generally just anyone coming in who might 
Durko Jerbs um, from you know workers who are currently unionized now. Yeah, but I do. So the 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 problem with the policy that you were just talking about there would be addressed by Andrew Wilkie's legislation that one of its core principles, the core principle, is family unity, and that detention is always the non-preferred option by anyone making decisions on immigration. So always, so using the principle of the rights of the child, uh, using the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And um, and I think that this would be a kind of legislation that would provide that longer term, actually, uh, you know, sinking your teeth in and 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 fundamentally changing the way we deal with people who uh, with irregular immigration. Yeah, I think another thing worth noting, just on my earlier point about there being like a sea change around this issue that. Labor will have to either support or put themselves in opposition to. It's that the last time we had like a flashpoint around refugee policy, it was, it was like the Medivac issue, I, I would say. And like with this, we had like people like broadly supporting the Medivac policy and opposing the Liberals' attempts to like, you know, stop it. Right. So like we, we, we had that going going on for one thing and like that's not to say that people were, were uh, that, that had suddenly like come out against like offshore detention or anything that wasn't necessarily the case but like we are seeing shifts like big shifts on this issue and labor can't keep rolling with the excuse that like you know, you know tamper you know it's, it's 20 years ago at this point right yeah you, you have to you have to understand that like things are changing, right? And like there will be a scare campaign against it. We we saw that literally in in the campaign for last election. Like you know, it, it, just like even a glimmer of like opposition to offshore detention will get you. Like will get Sky News down your throat. But you have to confront that eventually, and Labor have to figure out like when are they going to do that? It's one of the really interesting things about McKim's bill. He he has very much presented it as in the spirit of Medivac. And so his position is because the government supported Medivac when they were in opposition, there's not too much reason for them to not support the bill to evacuate the remaining 160 now. So it will be really interesting to see how the government talk themselves around the issue. Uh, and it, At the same time, though, like you mentioned about what happened during the campaign, Labor very much were backed into a into a wall and they had to affirm their commitment to Operation Sovereign Borders. So there's this interesting push and pull when they get uh, questioned too much. And we know the, the coalition really love to use this point. Labor appear still too scared to wade into that pool. Uh, so it'd be it'd be really interesting to see what happens. I, I would love to see I would love to see big change in this space. I, I, I think a lot about what's ahead of us with mass migration as a result of climate change. And it, I, it's going to be interesting. I, sometimes I wonder, because this the suggestion that Australia could become entirely uninhabitable, what then happens to us? And what do we deserve uh, based on our immigration choices all these years? <laughs> Very little. I think that's a good point to end yeah. on. <laughs> Let's yeah. get to superannuation. <laughs> yeah, yeah a, a lighter note potentially, but not really. So <laughs> we're looking at the superannuation change this week, right? So, of course, the Albanese government have made uh, a proposal this week to lift the tax rate on superannuation balances above $3 million to 30% from the current concessional rate of 15%. And this would be intended to take place on the 1st of July, 2025. So it's a few years off, for largely for electoral reasons, we will say. And this would raise $900 million over four years and is part of a broader plan to cut down on tax concessions in Australian government spending. So super currently constitutes one third of the top 10 tax concessions at $150 billion. So this is a pretty a pretty big concession. Where the electoral problems start to come in is that Finance Minister Katie Gallagher has recently confirmed that this could affect up to 10% of people retiring in 2030, when that, like, you know, especially like around like 2050, I believe is, the, is like when, um, when things really sort of start to amp up. So 
people are obviously quite annoyed about this. Lots of people that are now worried that like their super balances will be affected, that they will be taxed at a higher rate, sort of ignoring the fact that the 15% was always a concessional rate in the first place. So it was never really intended to be a permanent state of affairs. Uh, it was a tax concession, right? In terms of how the parliament have responded to this bill, We've had the Greens criticising the move for winding back super tax cuts, but not the stage three tax cuts. So returning back to their their broader issue with the Albanese government who made an election promise to keep the stage three tax cuts and held to that, much to everyone's chagrin, mainly mine. Dutton (laughs) uh, has promised to roll back these super changes if there is a Liberal win at the 2025 election. So clearly like ramping up to make this an election issue and Albanese has sort of allowed that by delaying these until then. So the whole point of the delay is to essentially turn this into an issue for the next election rather than like allowing it to like bog them down too much now. Uh, however, it seems to have bogged them down a little bit because they have dropped in the polls, as we mentioned at the start. So it will be interesting to see. And one of the big sort of questions here is like, was this the time to do it? So should they have done this year? Should they have done it at the last budget? And another interesting thing is that what does this say about the upcoming budget? Like, will this be like the hard budget where they start spending seriously some some of that political capital they've acquired since the last election or sort of because of the last election? So interesting to see. Another thing to note, so independents, the crossbench, have come out in like broad support of these changes. And in fact, they're pushing for more. So Pocock and Lambie want even more taxes on super. So, uh, what do we think? Was now the time to announce these changes? Well, I think it was. Uh, I just don't. I don't see the the benefit to cost ratio working out in the government's favour to this. Um, I'd much rather personally see like maybe not spending ninety billion dollars on a couple of submarines. That's that's the way to save money. Um, then then getting one point something bill on some minor super tax changes that's just going to piss everybody off i don't know it uh it seems like there there are ways that that uh costs or expenditures could be reined in um and you know i don't mind like super rich people being taxed more i love it i actually it's my favorite thing in the world um but i i just i just don't see the the return on the amount of like kind of political costs that they're going to bear from this like they're going to be able to harp on this forever and the the liberals are so good at expanding narrow rich people issues to uh everybody who is just a poor worker thinking that it's going to affect them too it's so true it like speaks to this secret part inside so many of us that trickle down economics could work and maybe one day i also will reap the benefits and goddamn, i don't want to be affected when that happens i could still be rich one day <laughs> the, the timing is interesting I, I don't know whether it is smart for them to push it into the next election and allow it to become such a such a big issue uh, the i watched a bit of uh I watched a bit of uh, Question Time uh, today and Dutton's already really loving it. He's got a list of all the election promises that that the uh, government have um, have already uh, backtracked on. And it, it's interesting. I wouldn't, couldn't they introduce, I, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I, it just seems, it seems like it could really bite them. Yeah, I think this is economically, uh, yeah, good tax tax the super are uh, the pretty clear economic argument for this if you have three million in your super you don't need that much you, th- you think you need probably you know a few a few hundred thousand we'll say uh if you have a million you're doing pretty well right if you're at three million then you know the marginal rate of, of utility that you get from like that amount of money is far better spent given to someone else less well off than you right pretty pretty, pretty clear argument i think so obviously, like the main thing here that's interesting is the political argument. So is this a politically beneficial thing to do? And the answer is like I'm not uh, I'm I'm not super sure. So I'm probably largely in agreement with the Greens' position here that yeah the state yeah if you wanted to spend political capital, the stage three tax cuts might have been the way to do it. Like pulling those back. 
um, probably not making the election promise in the first place. I'm, I'm, I don't necessarily think election promises should be broken, but at the same time, like, don't make the promise. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot we could have done with the money that we are putting towards the stage three tax cuts that could have built like a pretty strong political coalition to still support the Labor Party. And I think that the fact that Labor didn't do that is just a sign of political cowardice. A cowardice I get because it's the Labor Party and like, you know, rough 10 years, like sure. But at some point they need to build up that political courage again because the only way that change seems to happen politically in Australia is during these short bursts of time where the Labor Party are in power and have the courage to make big changes. This is how it's always sort of been since like the Labor Party like conceived of themselves like a century and two decades ago, right? So if they if they're going to keep keep to the sort of milk toast of like sort of reformism, um, like sort of yeah, really really milk toast reforms, then if they're going to keep to that, then you know like they. I just like I don't really know what to like what the long term plan is like like are you like are you really a represent are you really a representative of the Australian labor movement if this is like you know like <laughs> if this is how you're going to spend it like you know like raise money and run your tax and spend policy it's like sure yeah so I think this is you know sure whatever um, spend the political capital yeah make make more money tax more sure good but i'm not sure if this is necessarily the best way to go about it uh with that said yeah with that said like 64 percent of voters do approve of labor's proposed super changes uh and 29 disapprove and seven percent are unsure so i guess the the labor argument would be that this doesn't require all that much political capital because people do broadly support it so yeah you could argue that you know, go for something that requires less political capital than repealing the statutory tax cuts. Sure. With that said, we are already seeing liberal scare campaigns, so we will see how much that approval rating holds up as well. I think. Yeah, with the with the coverage at the moment, and like the morning shows and Sky News, and you'd think the sky was falling. Like it's yeah. just, uh, I was very surprised at that figure of approval thinking that everyone must be up in arms about it but that's it's just the fact that only two people own all of our media yeah yeah exactly yeah because the, the media are making a very big deal of it it's it's very interesting and then of course it it does exactly what it's intended to do make people think that there aren't uh there isn't broad support for it and then that can um, ultimately hurt opinions of the Labour Party and what they're trying to do. Yeah, so it will be really interesting to see how it plays out. I hope it doesn't fuck them over. I wish they had uh, gotten rid of the stage three tax cuts, but of course that would have affected more people and the approval rating for that probably would have been a lot lower. Yeah, yeah. So, sure, the, the look, it, it does seem the case that the Labour Party are just running this strategy of, for the, you know, for the three years we're in government this term, we are just going to do really basic, like really non-courageous stuff. Sure, if that's if that's the strategy, then we'll see we'll see out how that pans out in terms of achieving your ideological goals. Whether the Labor Party has ideological goals, maybe we can dispute. But yeah, I think we will see how this approval rating holds up because there is a pretty protracted media campaign against this already. Uh, I know that many members of the uh, the Australian retiree upper middle class already, you know, were quite quite up in arms about this. So we will see, and they are a pretty important like voting block. Like they they do they you know they do they do decide some electorates, right? So we'll see we'll see how that how that pans out. But moving on, we have a new segment now. Uh, put them in the bin. Would you like to explain this one, Jason? So basically, this is where we pick the most kind of politically egregious actors of the week and decide whether we're going to put them in the bin. And the alternative to that is the volcano. And the volcano is reserved for the worst of the worst. Do we just want to chuck them in the bin or do they deserve to burn in fiery, fiery lava? Excellent, excellent. So this week, I believe we are putting in the bin the New South Wales Police. Uh, Ellie, would you like to explain further? Yeah, it's it's been an interesting one. So it's it's uh, 
you know, New, uh, the New South Wales Police kind of acting, mm, arguably, under the uh, as an arm of the government here um, to intimidate pro uh, intimidate protesters. Uh, so. A university student was arrested recently and charged with aggravated trespass for protesting the housing crisis. They were on a public road outside the Reserve Bank in Sydney. It was a reasonably small protest of about 30 people. The arrest itself was pretty heavy-handed. She says uh, between four and five officers arrested her at her home at midnight. She had been asleep. She was then held in a cell for four hours and released with strict bail conditions that prevented her from entering Sydney CBD. She had to maintain a two-kilometre radius from the town hall, intended to prevent her from participating in further protests. The arrest is particularly interesting because she claims she complied with police at the protest which was roughly nine hours earlier. She apparently had been cautioned. They kind of spoke to her about some, some of the details. She asked if she was going to be detained. They said no, and that she could go. Thankfully, the magistrate threw out the bail restrictions. Uh, this happened last week. The magistrate labelled them as inappropriate, uh, saying that she didn't understand why the New South Wales Police had imposed bail, considering the student had no prior convictions and the offence that she was charged with carries a maximum fine of $5,500. The police say that the university student had participated in an unlawful protest, but the magistrate said the community had a lawful right to protest in the CBD and that none of the facts of the case suggest that any of the protesters were acting violently. So what the police are alleging is that protesters ran towards the front door of the RBA, where they were blocked by a security guard who shouted that they were trespassing, and the police um, then the police claimed that the protesters continued to force entry uh, and kept getting pushed back. The protesters say they had been outside the RBA for a maximum of 10 minutes, and they walked to the door before this, the security guard pushed them back. The police say that the protesters' actions significantly interfered with the conduct and business of the RBA and that they had to temporarily stop any form of access into the premises. So this is now something that is considered a criminal offence in the state. This student uh, will face a sentencing hearing on October 25th and she will plead not guilty. Uh, so New South Wales have in incrementally been tightening penalties for protesters. Uh, they last year made it an offence to protest on roads, train stations, ports, public or private infrastructure without approval. So technically this protest they hadn't filled in a certain form. I believe law changes were also made around the same time to prevent protests on bridges and tunnels. So you can now uh, get slapped with a penalty of uh, $22,000 or two years imprisonment. And I think we all heard about the climate protester who who uh, has been, she has been imprisoned for uh, blocking a, uh, climate protest, I think she was blocking a bridge or a road or something to that effect. So, um, yeah, I, what do you guys think? Bin or Volcano? <laughs> is super aggravating to me. Yeah. I don't, I didn't know about that. They changed the legislation so you can't like publicly protest without, uh, and in certain public spaces, train stations and whatnot. Um, yeah, no, it's this is this is particularly bad. Yeah. I think that this is the New South Wales state government basically going uh, full fashy to stop. Like, I don't want to bring out the F word, but um, it's almost a pre not precursor like a pre premeditated action to we're gonna do a lot of things that everyone doesn't like so we need to make sure people can't make it look like they don't like those things yeah so this is interesting because it's sort of student politics related and i am somewhat involved in student politics as a journalist type person not a student politician fortunately for, for my my personal well-being and the people around me will say <laughs> but yeah so I, I i had heard about this issue and there's been some dodgy stuff going on around around sydney recently so we've got especially around, around usage so we've got this issue that with cherish coleman who is the which is the name of the of the protester who who was arrested we also had two two students suspended from usage recently for protesting malcolm turnbull uh that was sort of late last year but they've been suspended now after sort of a, a tribunal uh, decided made that decision, so we've had some we have some stuff going on here recently. Um, all of these activists have been affiliated with social, uh, socialist alternative, if that if that means anything to, uh, to anyone. They're a you know a prominent uh, Trotskyist student organization uh, mainly. Um, so 
yeah uh so lots of lots of crackdown there not looking too good we will say i think this is not a move that one should appreciate if they value certain core liberal values <laughs> of uh, of the freedom to protest for one but at the end of the day as well australia is a nation of fucking narcs and we do not like protesters despite you know thinking we're super rebellious and stuff we hate protesters we hate being mildly inconvenienced so i think we can expect to see more of this we, we've already seen in victoria yeah, we've had it, pretty big protest crackdowns there already we will likely see more of it from new south wales as well and certainly no like liberal voters would have a stockade flag on their car or something like that so obviously we don't we don't like protests yes. at all yeah, but i do i do think in this case it's kind of interesting because it seems like they mostly wanted to get them for uh trespass but they've because they, their claim was that they were trying to force their way in and they were told to leave as their whole gripe yet they charged them with protest violations when their entire argument is that they were they could have just if they did actually do that then yes you can uh, arrest people for trespass it's as soon as you're asked to leave a private premises then although is is the rba private it's it's kind of in an independent government body yeah it's, a, it's just a statutory um, body, I it, think, yeah. yeah okay uh so i don't know I, I'm not sure whether it would be formally included in the in the idea of a, of a private premises or somewhere you can publicly go. But yeah, obviously, whatever the protest laws that they had previously um, put in would probably include that kind of situation. But yeah, all of their argument is about them, you know, being somewhere they shouldn't be or have been asked to leave. Yeah, it's. I find it really troubling, even though they're not necessarily pursuing uh with this particular protest the fact that they just didn't fill in that form to make it technically a lawful protest uh, i think the trespass becomes a different issue in, in and of itself the form i think gets approved by the new south wales police and i'm really not sure that we want to be giving the police this uh, ability to approve or uh all protests it what happens if someone wants to protest police brutality and and things like that that there's no way there's so many protests that just aren't going to get approval as a result of these kinds of laws and i think that that's uh, that's really troubling as well oh we probably need another independent body to approve protests yeah. i mean it's, it's it's pretty similar to like what we already have going on with strike action right where to do strike action you have to get it approved by the fair work commission which is a fairly cooked system when you have to get the government to approve your industrial action like that doesn't seem conducive to effective unionism in australia we'll say and now it seems like they want to take that's their take, plan that, sorry <laughs> i said that's yeah, their plan exactly, yeah I mean, yeah i mean it, it was it was a late it was a labor government policy as well Oh yeah, yeah no, but no, the, don't worry. Like, Labour since the not, early eighties. Uh, <laughs> Labour party like unions, been... the only one, yeah, you, only only these, only this kind of union, you know. <laughs> um, only only Labour party unions, um, but yeah, uh, like so, we're seeing something pretty similar here. I feel, which is not. It's not the sort of system I really want growing, we'll say. It's really troubling because it's it's really spreading across the country. Uh, so you, you've mentioned Victoria, but Tasmania has passed new laws. In Tasmania, interestingly, even an organisation that's deemed to have supported members of the community to protest can be fined. And it's quite, it's quite a large one, $45,000. Uh, Queensland passed new laws uh, back in 2019 to prevent protesters from using certain locking devices and police have extra powers to search activists. And, uh, and then in WA, they're cracking down on climate activists at the moment. There was a recent raid just this last week on a, a lass who was involved in... Have you seen those protests where they're spray painting the Woodside logo around? She, she's been involved in a number of those. So they raided her house and see some of her personal effects. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. I suppose I'm, I'm curious... What, what it, why do you guys think that the government are clamping down on peaceful protests in the way that they are at the moment? Because it's politically popular. You know, like, like I said, we're a nation of narcs. People don't like protests. 
it's a pretty easy way to take advantage of that to ensure that you don't have to deal with the inconvenience that is done to you by having members of the public loudly oppose policy you are engaging in right i think that's that's pretty much it <laughs> uh, yeah look there might for certain for certain instances there might be like genuine concerns like i i i can almost appreciate like wanting to have lockdown protest restrictions during lockdowns for instance i, I can sort of get that although i might not completely agree with that still but I think there is a genuine safety concern there, at least, and maybe maybe governments are genuinely concerned with with, with safety at points, right? But in terms of like this broader trend we're seeing, I don't believe that is the case. I believe this is something like not even like malicious necessarily, although although malice is certainly involved. It's just like politics, essentially. It's just like cold hard, like real politic i reckon i feel like it also probably has something to do with them seeing the kind of uh how things are shifting like materially for people and that we're probably entering a period where uh, like income inequality and uh the vast difference between the haves and the have-nots uh could be reaching kind of a breaking point where there is likely to be if things get much worse people are going to get restless people are going to get more and more uh especially with things like we were talking about before around housing or uh just the ability to afford the weekly shop like uh people are going to become disquieted yeah and that anger will lead to protest in some form and it makes sense they want to clamp down on and really discourage the kind of protests that we are likely to see increasing in the next little bit that cost of living and climate related stuff i i get really worried I, you know i can understand that we don't want to be convenienced i get it and people have got things going on i just really worry that if we're so happy to see protests suppressed because we're inconvenienced, what then happens when it's an issue that you're actually interested in? Because if you open the door to protester suppression, thinking it's not an issue that I can really, that I care about, shut them down. Those laws, those changes, those precedents eventually come for things that you care about too. And it's a big mistake, I think, that we make. We, we don't look ahead. We don't realise the we don't realize what we're allowing to happen. And it'll be interesting, um, maybe as people start to change their perspectives, uh, maybe a little bit of inconvenience is, is worthwhile. Uh, I know that it's a quite a hot button topic. Uh, Joel, you mentioned the protests during COVID. I, I, I think that we, we don't want to shut down protests. I know a lot of people disagree with that protest, but if you, clamp down on protests you don't agree with, expect that protests you do agree with will also be clamped down by those who don't agree with them. And I just think we just, it's not an area that we want to go. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think a big trick that, that governments play here is setting up a dichotomy between the the, the rowdy, the disrespectful, the, the, the careless activist who wants to ruin your day and you, the you know, the, the probably like comfortable middle class person who is inconvenienced by by such protests, and like the trick is to make sure you don't care, essentially, to make sure that like the the other is portrayed in a certain way that like their concerns can and should never be taken seriously, so you can sort of keep living comfortably, essentially. I'm I'm always reminded of the vegan protests a few years back, where like I, I didn't think these were the the most optically effective. We'll say I don't think they they did much good for the perception of the vegan movement, but the fact that people can't see that and realize the extent of the violence that is wrought upon animals like every second of every day, like the the sheer amount of suffering that like mankind like inflicts upon upon the people we share the earth with is like yeah the the the, the, the sort of willful lack of self-reflection there still sort of disgusts me years later um so i think you know um and like that's because you, you're sort of conditioned to not care right you're conditioned to, to see to see the vegan as uh, as as your enemy as as someone who just like wants to take your meat away 
but then yeah <laughs> yeah like, uh, and you can just tell that m most people have not spent like a solid minute of their lives thinking about like the level of complicity that everyone has in like this kind of suffering uh, and that applies to many other protests as well it applies to many many civil rights protests environmental rights protests like it's a pretty similar thing like it's just like about making sure you don't care I had to bring it back from veganism at the end, though. otherwise I'd get too I'd get too preachy. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see the vegans put together a you know a half decent protest. I I know that sometimes I look at what they're doing and I think, why did you choose that? Like, <laughs> doesn't really seem to be the best yeah, idea. Look, Try look, again. Yeah. Come back look, with something. Vegan activism has a has a way to go. All right. <laughs> Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Like, get some really good marketing people up there. Like, let's let's uh, let's gain some traction. But yeah, they seem to be making some funny choices, which isn't helping. I also think that even though the magistrate uh, threw out the bail restrictions, and it it doesn't seem when people are kind of brought into the system in this way, it's a huge inconvenience. Like, if you have a court appearance on a day for a minor issue like this, you might be there for half a day. If you have work that you need to go to, like. This is a, a big deterrent, even though the actual outcome in terms of monetary damages or anything like that might not be very high. Uh, it, it, it's a huge inconvenience and, and it's a cool it has a cooling effect in the end, I think um, this kind of this kind of heavy handed um, we're going to launch in and arrest somebody and then everything will work out in the wash. Uh, and Imagine if uh, the bail conditions had been upheld as well. Imagine this poor lass having to wait until October at a minimum to be able to enter Sydney CBD. Like, imagine if we became accustomed to protesters having these really arbitrary bail restrictions put upon them. It's that's it, heading into some very scary territory. We already know our bail system's fucked. It's all pretty fucked. And that's a good way to end. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you for joining us tonight, everyone. Um, Edge of the Election is affiliated with the Edge of the Crowd network. You can read our stories on sports, culture and politics at edgeofthecrowd.com. You can find us on social media at Edge of the Crowd on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, if that's your thing, what have you. And you can find me on uh, at Joel W. Duggan on Twitter. I only really have Twitter. You will not find me on Instagram. Uh, Jason, Ali, would you like to share your social media? Uh, yeah, you can reach me at the Jason Gunst uh, is my Twitter handle, and um, that's that's it. That's all I'm comfortable with releasing. <laughs> Go and release your phone number. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at eclaringbold underscore. And now I've said that twice, I feel like I absolutely need to change my handle. So watch this space. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> Uh, I think uh, I don't know. I think I think Joel W. Duggan sort of works. So that, that that's that's easy, you know. Um, although it does, everyone can sort of tell that my middle name is William, which is maybe maybe an issue. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, please join us again next week, where we'll cover probably more cooked stuff. It's not a it's not a very positive podcast, is it? <laughs> cool. All right. That's it. Sure. Let's just move back from there. Come on. Hey guys, I've just reseated that. Yeah, please, off the thing. Sorry, mate. All good? That's all good. Thanks.